All right, good morning, guys. My name's Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and uh, we're going through a study in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please don't grab, grab one off the floor around you. We have them distributed throughout um, the room. And uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, you're going to be going to page 528. Um, 528 and going to Proverbs chapter 3. While you're turning over there, I want to kind of let you know what's coming up. Um, a couple years ago, I taught a sermon series through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is really the central place in the New Testament that teaches about how we should manage our money and how we deal with giving. We called that sermon series Get Greedy. Um, and the premise behind it was this, that if we get greedy for the right things, it frees our hearts for greed for the wrong things, and that what we do with our money is, in fact, deeply spiritual. Um, now, that has become one of our most popular sermon series, and, uh, and so we're going to be revisiting it in September, uh, starting next week. We're calling it, in a, in a very witty way, Get Greedy-er. Um, do you like that? It's like part two, but we're actually, what we're doing is, is kind of digging back into 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, um, which I think is appropriate for the season we're in. Obviously, we're, we're in this time of great excitement, right? We, we bought a building and we're in the process of rehabbing it and, and, and renovating it and, and, and dreaming about getting in there very, very soon. Um, but I want to cast a very clear vision that as we get ready to move into our new building, the last thing I want us to do is move into that building and then be like, all right, we made it. Here we are, kind of get to check out. We've arrived because the building is nowhere near as important as the character of the people who meet in that building. Right? We don't want just the right building. We want to be the right people meeting in that building. And so we're going to take some time. We're going to talk a little bit about um, this great opportunity that's in front of us. But honestly, the great opportunity isn't just for us to get into a, 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 you know, a new building with tall ceilings and great acoustics and enough room and, and all this you know, great kids space. That's awesome but it's a, it's, a, it's a bridge for us. It's a tool for us to reach into the community and, and to continue to bless and to serve and um, to reach out in the gospel. If you're new here, this coming sermon series will be a great chance for you to discover what makes us tick as a church. If you are a member, a regular attender here, it's going to be a chance for you to refocus on what is um, important. And so I invite you guys back as we get into that um, starting next week. I also want to invite you to come this afternoon. Uh, we do have an open house over at the new building from 2 to 4, technically 2 to 3.30. Um, get a tour, let people show you around. You can get a little bit of our vision for what's happening over there. You can actually get into the space before uh, we begin the rehab. And then at 4 o'clock, we're going to be meeting back over here. And I would encourage you all to be here for that meeting um, because we're going to be talking about the opportunity we have in front of us and the challenges that, that we're going to overcome. Uh, to move into that space. And so um, be here at four o'clock. There will be childcare available for that, um, but I encourage you to come back for that. All right, we're getting ready to finish our time in Proverbs chapter three. We've had a great month kind of digging into this chapter. I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Proverbs three as we move through, because I'm not just going to read it. Um, we're going to actually be referencing it and moving through the chapter um, because we're going to actually cover the rest of the chapter this morning. Um, all right. I'm going to jump ahead and talk about Jesus for a minute. Um, I think that's appropriate, right? Um, he came a little bit after Proverbs, but everything in Proverbs looks forward to him sort of a deal. So here's the thing. Jesus was continually confounding um, his critics and confusing his followers. That's part of what made it so fun to hang out with him. Um, he was just unpredictable. He would say things that were out of left field. He would do things that just knocked you off balance. And uh, he, was, he was a real hoot like that. Um, 
And, uh, and one time he was asked by the leadership what the greatest commandment was. Um, they were actually trying to trap him. The scribes and Pharisees showed up and, and they were constantly trying to trap him in his words. And, and there were all kinds of little technical nuances that were going on here. But they're like, all right, Jesus, you great rabbi, you great teacher. Why don't you tell us what the greatest commandment in, in the entire Bible is, you know? And, uh, and everybody's waiting with bated breath. You know, is it, is it going to be don't murder or, or don't steal or, or don't make idols or, or, or don't listen to Nickelback, right? Um, it actually wasn't any of those. Surprisingly, Jesus didn't actually reference any of that. Um, he said, look, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments rest the entire law and the prophets. In other words, you want to know what the most commandment it is, most important commandment is, you got to look at the foundation um, and the purpose behind them, which is love of God and love for people. What he was saying was that love was the fulfillment and the foundation of the law. And this was a radical and countercultural truth. And it's just as radical and countercultural for us today as it was then, because it challenges our hearts in ways um, that are profound. So here's the thing. Jesus wasn't just making this stuff up, right? When, when he responded to this question, it wasn't like on the fly. He's like, oh yeah, I think this is what he was doing was unpacking the central theme of the entire Bible. He was unpacking what they had missed in all their arguments about the most important law or whether the moral law was more important than the ceremonial law or who was better at doing what. They missed it. So what he's doing, he's going back to the heart of it and he's saying, look, this is the most important thing, the piece that you've missed. It's all about love. Love for God and love for others. It's pervasive through the Old Testament, and in fact, it's pervasive right here on our own chapter, Proverbs chapter 3. In Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon is speaking to his son. And what he's saying to his son, he's pleading with his son. He's like, man, I want you to walk in the fullness of God's blessing, right? I'm yearning for you to make choices, to live your life in such a way that you experience God's best and not life's worst, and then he focuses his proverb as he's going through on, on three areas, right? The, the, the book of Proverbs chapter 3 can be broken into three sections. We've spent all of our time so far in the first section, which really can be summarized as love God. It's that first section in which um, he is exhorting his son, do not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. In other words, allow God's character and, and, and who he's revealed himself to be and how he acts to shape you, right? God loves you as an act of steadfast love, not conditional, not based on how well you perform, not better today than he did yesterday because you're nicer and not worse tomorrow. He loves you with an infinite, um, unmeasurable, unconditional, unwavering love. It is covenant love. It is steadfast love. And because he loves you so much, everything he does is faithful to that love. Every action, every exertion of his power, every display of his holy is in fact faithful to his character as one who is um, in, in relationship with you in steadfast love. He's a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And if you sit in that long enough, beautiful things happen in your heart. If you actually allow yourself to be loved by God in that way, which is, by the way, our great challenge, if you actually allow yourself to experience that kind of love, to humble your heart and to receive God's unconditional love, what it will do is it will soften you. It will change you. It will transform you. And you'll come to love God in return. See, it's one thing to say, love God. That's a commandment. Good luck. It's not going to happen, 
right? But if you sit in God's love for you, what you'll find is that you'll actually have a responding love for him. It will actually come naturally as a response to God's love. And so um, that whole first section is if you sit in that, what will end up happening is it'll change your life, right? He's saying to to his son, it's going to affect everything. You you can't um, have your spiritual life and then your business life and then your family life. Man, when you get this, it permeates all of life. It'll affect every decision. It'll affect your wallet. And it'll affect your suffering because what you'll end up seeing is that God's steadfast love and faithfulness plays its way out in all areas of life. And that's kind of what we've been sitting in over the last um, four weeks as we've really been looking at the fact that, that Solomon's calling his son to love the Lord God with all of his heart, soul, and mind. This morning, we're going to be looking at the other side of the equation, which is the third section of the proverb, that we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So take a look at Proverbs, um, the end, chapter 3, verse 27 through 35. Let's read this section together. I'll read it out loud. You follow along. And then we're going to dig into this a little bit. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. All right, so what's interesting is we get into this, um, we get a bunch of do not statements, all right? Did you pick up on that? Do not, do not, do not, do not. Sounds like we're going to have a lot of fun this morning, doesn't it, right? Do not statements are not generally cheerful, and, um, but really what he's doing is he's basically saying, look, if you want to walk in the path of wisdom, if you want to walk in the path of God's blessing, you need to love your neighbor, right? That's the bottom line. You need to love your neighbor. And so he's looking at, at the, the attitudes and behaviors that need to not be in place, but he's still in a way defining what it means to love our neighbor. Because if we do these things, we're not acting in love. And so I want to go through these just kind of one by one and unpack them a little bit um, and hit them a little bit and, and see if we can um, maybe pull back a few layers on our own hearts, okay? And see how these things apply to us. First of all, in verses 27 and 28, he tells us, um, don't withhold what someone deserves, right? In 27 and 28, he says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. So this is essentially um, an inverse of the command, do not steal, right? To steal is an act of commission. I'm actually doing it, right? I'm taking something from you. What he's describing is the omission, right? This is a case where I have the ability to do something good for you, and in fact, I should, but I choose not to. This is, this is not necessarily stealing from you by actively taking something. It's stealing from you by passively not doing for you what I should or could do, not doing for you what you um, deserve. This may seem like pretty common sense advice. And if we just look at it on the surface, you're like, yeah, I, I can do this. This is not that big of a deal, right? <laughs> if I borrow a dude's hammer and he comes over, 
And he's like, hey, Steve, can I have the hammer back? And I got it in my back pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back tomorrow. Right? No, I'm going to be like, here, dude, it's your hammer. Thanks for loaning it to me. Right? If I borrow his lawnmower or his weed whip or whatever. So, yeah, I'll just go to the garage. I'll grab it for you. Thanks for, for loaning it to me. I can, I can do that. But it gets a lot more complicated when we think about this, not just in terms of a discrete thing that I might borrow, but in issues that are a little bit more complex. Um, it gets more complicated when we start talking about issues of legal rights cultural trends, money, issues of human dignity. In fact, I want to dig into that one just a little bit. We can go a million ways with this, but um, this one has been floating in front of me for a little while, um, mainly because social media floats in front of me. So let's talk a little bit about social media um, and how this plays out. Okay, On my Facebook feed, if yours is anything like mine, it's just starting to heat up, right? We're coming into election season, and, and people are starting to mark their territory right? They're starting to push out material that is pro their candidate and con their non-candidate, right? The person they wished would just drop out and cease to exist. Um, And and what ends up happening is in this process, it really is my Facebook feed is filled with all these demonstrations of self-righteous condemnation. It really gets ugly, Right, I got I got I got a diverse friend group, uh, and and many of them are believers. Many of them are unbelievers. I have people that are both progressive and conservative, um, and um, and so I've got some people that absolutely hate Trump and everything he stands for. Right, and and Trump's the guy not just because he's funny, um, but but because he's kind of the leading right now. He is leading the the conservative right, and so that they they they. They hate that, right? I got other people who absolutely hate uh, Bernie Sanders, right? They hate Hillary Clinton even more, right? And, and so what ends up happening is, is these guys will post any degrading and defamatory thing about them they can find. And often I think they don't even care if it's true or not. If it's funny, if it makes them look bad, if it casts them in a bad light, they're like, yeah, I'll repost that. Why? Because... I don't know. It makes me feel good. I like it when I post things and people are like, yeah, so I'm venting a little bit and people are venting back at me and we're all venting in the same direction. And it's just like, yeah, this is awesome. We're actually doing something. Not really, but it kind of feels like it. You know, it's like, okay, we're, we're, we're engaging in this, man. We, we're, we're making a statement. All right, here's what, what's wrong with that, you guys. I mean, they're politicians, right? They're part of a, a larger cultural can I use the word conversation? Is that even possible in our, I don't think so. It's more of a cultural war, right? They're part of a larger cultural tension uh, or conflict or, or war. Um, and, and as this cultural tension increases and the elections come up, man, things get ugly. Things get ugly. Here's the thing, you guys. I want you to remember it. These people are still people created in the image of God. Like they have the stamp of the Imago Dei on them in the image of God. They were created in the image of God. And as those created in the image of God, they are worthy of every dignity afforded to humanity. We dishonor God when we dishonor his image by dishonoring those who were created in his image. You're like, Steve, man, this is a battle. This is a battle. Every, every election is, and we need to, to fight Four candidates 
that are going to be for the good of our country, that are going to advance our cause, that are going to advance the righteousness of God and stand for the things we believe in. And we need to fight against and defeat those candidates that are against what we stand for, right? This guy is killing babies and this guy is gutting our military and this guy is for continuing to trample on the poor and disenfranchised and and this guy and that guy. And Steve, even Jesus got angry. When he saw the injustice in society, even he got angry. Right? He came to the temple, and, and in the temple courtyard, they had set up um, these, these, they were selling animals, right? That, that people from the diaspora, the Jews that were far away, would come into town, and they'd have to repurchase their sacrifices. And, and these guys had said, the only sacrifices that you can sacrifice are the ones we approve, and by the way, you can only buy them from us. And so Jesus came into this area where they were profiting, and, and, and they were causing, you know, there was social injustice, and there was the abuse of the poor. And what did he do? He kicked over tables, right? And he wasn't just like, I mean, he, he made a whip, man. Like he kicked over tables and he was hitting people. Like he was mad. He was righteously angry. Shouldn't we be demonstrating that same kind of righteous anger about the things in our culture and in our country that are an offense against God? You guys, there is a place for righteous anger. And I'm not telling you not to have strong opinions. I am not telling you not to fight for what you believe in. In fact, I think these verses, the verses we just read, pretty much tell us we have to fight for what we believe in. We have to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. We have to fight to give people what is their due, even when culture and society is not protecting them or standing up for them or working for them. We need to. But here's the thing, you guys. Jesus cleansed the temple, and he drove out the money changers. And then he went and died for them. Even as he was kicking over the tables and driving them out, his heart was breaking in love and compassion for them. People created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. He acted against their sin, but his heart broke for them as he did it. Listen to me, Christian. If you are calling people out, if you are attacking people's positions, but you can't honestly say that your heart breaks in love for them, that you have compassion for them, then what you are experiencing is not righteous anger. It is self-righteous anger. And you are robbing them of their due. Because they were created in the image of God. They deserve every dignity afforded to humanity. So the next time you're tempted to rant about someone's political position or about their position on breastfeeding or their position about their thoughts of immunization or whether they like cats better than dogs, we can get excited about all kinds of things, can't we? You need to stop and ask, am I robbing this person of their due? Am I speaking in such a way? Is my heart engaged in such a way that I love those with whom I differ? That my heart breaks in love and compassion for those that are on the different side of the scale from me? 
Am I protecting their dignity and giving them love and compassion even as I argue my case? Don't withhold what is due when it is in your power to give it. Don't withhold what someone deserves. So Solomon starts off with kind of a bang. He goes on in verse 29 with the next do not. He says, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. This is pretty self-explanatory, right? And you're like, yeah, I think I'm pretty cool. I haven't done anything evil to my neighbors. In fact, they're kind of cool. I like them all right as long as they keep their distance. And they're doing all right with that, right? So they keep their space. I keep mine. We say hi to each other in the driveway. Not plotting any evil against them, right? Not going to go spray paint side of their house. Not going to hijack their car. Not going to, right? Just, all right, let's dig in a little bit. What we're talking about here is, is <laughs> don't misuse someone's trust for personal gain. That's really what he's saying here. When we get close to somebody and we establish a relationship of trust with them, they drop their guard. They stop being super inspective and self-protective because they believe that in a sense you've got their back, that, that their trust is well placed in you. And the command here is saying don't misuse someone's trust for your personal gain. When someone trusts you, you end up getting freedoms that come with that trust. Don't exploit that freedom for personal gain. Don't get ahead at someone else's expense. This plays out in every area of relationship in which we build cooperative relationships, right? It plays out at home, husbands and wives. Don't misuse the trust of your spouse to exploit it for personal advantage or pleasure. Don't create a safe space to hide your sin because your spouse trusts you so they aren't asking the hard questions or digging in. Don't do it. In business, don't misuse someone's trust for personal gain. You're like, Steve, man, business, man, it's, it's dog eat dog, man. I mean, it's, you got to get ahead. It's competitive. You got to be, I know, I know, I'm, I'm wired that way. That's, I have started businesses and, and love sales and, and I love the competition. And I, I you know, because it, it is a competition, I'm competing right? To get ahead, which means I need to get the sale that somebody else doesn't. I need to close a deal. I, I need to, to, to develop um, these things, right? But here's the thing. If we're going to obey this, what it means is we need to be competitive and work to win, but we need to do it with honor. We need to, to not take advantage of those opportunities for dishonest gain. When we see the opportunity to get ahead in a way that, that is actually going to come at someone else's expense, to be willing to say, I'm not going to get ahead in that way. I will not do it at the expense of others, my coworkers or the people on my team or maybe my supervisor who I don't even like. Right? I'm not going to get ahead by creating a, a place of trust where I can use their um, trust to my advantage to exploit them for my gain. This happens, of course, in your neighborhood, in your cul-de-sac, in your dorm. Don't, dump, don't jump in. Don't ignore when, when someone's being taken advantage of. Just because somebody um, can't protect themselves or stand up for their own rights or work toward their own ends doesn't mean that, that you should um, simply join in the advantage of that, right? Don't misuse someone's trust for personal gain. Verse 30, Solomon goes on and he says, don't contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm, Right? 
Don't go out looking for a fight. Really what this means is, is don't vent your negative feelings on someone that you don't value. That's really what you're doing here, right? When you're out there just looking for a fight, you're looking to vent your negative feelings on somebody you don't value. You've never done this, have you? Gotten up late, in a rush for work, things aren't going right. Some dude tries to merge a little too closely to your car. And you didn't get angry, right? You didn't say anything. And road rage, man, we've all had it. That dude that gets on your bumper that wants to drive like two miles an hour faster than you, so he rides your bumper, you know, like you look in your rearview mirror, you can see his teeth, right? He's just that close, drives you nuts. We get so angry on the road. You know why? Because we forget that there are actually people behind the wheels of those other cars, that there are people. We are surrounded by the Imago Dei. We are surrounded by people created in the image of God. All we see are cars in our way. We see cars that are slowing us down or, or driving in ways that we don't like. We've already talked about Facebook. <laughs> we definitely see it there. Let's get a little closer to home. You ever picked a fight with your spouse when it wasn't their fault? You ever been in the frame of mind where you're just off a little bit? You've, you know, you're a little emotionally sideways or whatever, and it causes you to magnify their weakness so that it looks really, really big, and it's really not as big as you're making it out to be, but you just feel so good rubbing their nose in it. You ever do that? You ever go off on them because the toilet paper comes under instead of over? I've told you a thousand times, right? You ever go off on them because the kitchen towel isn't where it's supposed to be? It's crumpled up in the corner? Right? Because that thing that you've told them a thousand times, they forgot it one more time. <laughs> you ever go off on your kids? Because they were just being kids? Stop acting like a kid. I'm like three. I can't help it, right? I mean, kids are kids. Kids act like kids. And yet there are times where like, just stop that, right? Kind of go off on them. See, what we're doing in those situations is we're venting our negative feelings on someone that we don't value. You're like, what are you, what are you, I, I value my husband, I value my wife, I value my kids. You know what? Familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes the people we should value the most are the people we end up valuing least. And they're the ones we take the most advantage of, and they're the ones we become most abusive toward. And we start assuming their affection for us and assuming their partnership with us and assuming their benefit to us. And we start taking them for granted and we project on them all the negative feelings we have inside. All right, the next verse tells us not to avoid envy. You guys having fun yet? All right. Um, The next verse tells us not to avoid envy, verses 31 and 32. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious man is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. So don't envy the man of violence. Don't envy the man of devious ways. What he's really saying here is don't envy the image of somebody else's life. Because what ends up happening is we see someone and we start telling a story that explains what we see. So we see someone that's like really popular, seems to be getting ahead or has gotten wealth or has a certain circle of influence or has gained a certain level of of whatever. And we start telling a story about them in our head and we start telling the story we want to be told about ourselves. And we start envying the story we tell about them. And it's not real. It's not true. We don't know anything about them. 
We don't know what they're actually experiencing, what their heart condition is. We don't, we don't know anything about them, but we start telling the story about them. We wish was true about us, and we start envying the image of somebody else's life. There's a lot of danger in this because we start to imitate what we envy. And a lot of times uh, it looks like the people who are doing all the things wrong are the same people that are getting all the right things. And so we start looking at them and saying, man, why am I, why am I trying? Why am I working so hard? Why am I fighting for my marriage? Why am I fighting to, to be honest in my job? Why am I fighting to do this the right way? They make it look so easy. The challenge, though, is what we're telling ourselves about them is, in fact, <laughs> not true. And sometimes we tell a better story for people's lives than God is going to tell. Sometimes we look at their short-term prosperity and we attribute to that long-term blessing and say, I want that, when it's not true. We do a lot of this, right? I mean, it used to be we would watch the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Um, I don't know that anybody does that anymore, but um, our vision is filled daily. Filled daily, right? Every, we, we, all, every day, right? What are we seeing? We're seeing other people's food. We're seeing other people's kids. We're seeing other people's spouses. We're seeing other people's vacations. We're seeing other people's new houses and new cars. We're seeing other people's outward displays of, of uh, affluence or success. And we start to crave the image of what we think they have. And we start magnifying in our own vision what we don't. And so this dream world of everything we think they have gets really big in our eyes and, and we start minimizing our blessings and magnifying our struggles. And it simply breeds discontent in our hearts. Do not envy the image of someone else's life. All right, let me ask you something. How are you doing so far? Anybody feeling condemned? Just me? <laughs> If you, I mean, if you got to this point and you're like, no, dude, I got it wired, you are lying to yourself. <laughs> you are not honest, right? I mean, this stuff, man, this is exposes our hearts. This peels back the layers of our self-righteousness. If you really look in there, it goes layers and layers and layers and layers, and it just gets uglier the deeper it goes. So what do we do with this? What do we do with do not commands like this? This is the way to God's blessing. That's what he's saying. You want to walk the blessed life? Do not do these things. So what do we do? We're like, all right, I will not do these things. I will make a checklist of things I will not do. I will not do that thing, and I will not do that thing. And we, we, we obey it for like 24 hours, and we're like, yes, I'm so much better than you. Right? And then we break it and we're like, ah, I am backslidden. I thought I was way up here on the mountain and look at me, I'm down in the valley. I am crushed with, with uh, self-contempt. Here's the thing, you guys. Commands are really good at telling us what we should do. They're really good at telling us what we could do. And they're really good at telling us what we won't do. Because commands set a bar and tell us where we're supposed to be, but give us no ability to get there. They show us the measuring stick, but don't tell us how to measure up. They tell us where we're supposed to be, but don't help us get us, get us there. 
And that's why in the end we end up either pretending like we're there, pretending we're better than we are, pretending we're more righteous and more religious and more holy than we actually are, or just chucking the whole thing because it's impossible. And the deeper we dig in and the more self-improvement projects we put in place, the more we fail, the more we realize we're helpless. Here's the thing, you guys. We don't need the command. The command helps. The command tells us what is right, and it tells us what is holy, and it tells us what we're supposed to be. But more than the command, we need the promise behind the command. Because there are promises that provoke faith in us. And that interplay of the promise and faith experience, gives us a deeper experience of love. Command simply produces um, pride or self-condemnation. So I'm going to jump back up to verses 18 and 19. I, I would love to spend time unpacking all of these verses because it really is rich. We don't have time. So we're simply going to take a look at verses 18 and 19. So what I want you to show you is that Solomon understood this. Okay, Solomon is talking to his son, and he is trying to give him a framework for understanding how to do this. So we're just going to look at verses 18 and 19 and 20, right? She, now she hears wisdom. He's personifying her as a beautiful young woman, which is perfectly appropriate when you're talking to a young man. He says, she is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold fast are called blessed. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens by his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down dew. All right, let me see if I can unpack this a little bit. In verse 19, we have that statement that God created the world by wisdom. What that means is that wisdom is actually hardwired into the universe. When he created the world, he created it um, with laws, right? We understand that there are physical laws of the universe and chemical laws of the universe and, 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 and right, that, that these things are true, right? And he goes on and he, and he actually uses the illustration, like the deeps of the water that come down in the dew of heaven, right? That, that, that there is this natural cycle that he already built into the created universe of, of, of giving us fresh water. It all goes down to the ocean, which is this great, you know, um, pit to clean up all the water and evaporation. And it comes back down as dew and we get fresh water, right? God built this in. This is chemistry. This is physics. They are, they are actual physical laws of the universe, much like gravity, right? It, it's just a law, right? You can fight against it, but you're not going to win, Right? Keep on fighting, but you will eventually succumb to gravity, right? And all the other physical laws of the universe. Here's what he's saying is that there are spiritual and moral laws of the universe too. He hardwired them in. Hardwired them in. What that means is that those who obey them reap a blessing, and those who disobey them reap death. And all of death's ugly cousins, isolation and and. Um, despair and bitterness and hatred of others and hatred of self. That's why when we see in our culture these movements that people don't even believe the Bible, right? They don't even believe this stuff, but they start acting in accordance with it and they, they reap blessing. Like this huge emphasis right now, this huge emphasis on generosity, which I love, right? There's this whole thing about be generous. And, and what ends up happening when you're generous is that, is that you actually unleash blessing in your life. Well, here's the thing, you guys. Somebody can put that into practice, they can become more generous in their lives, and they'll be blessed. 
they'll actually experience some of the blessing. Why? Because it is one of the things that are hardwired into the universe. You can do it absent from actually believing in God and reap some of the blessing. Solomon's pleading with his son because he doesn't want him just to reap some of the blessing. He wants him to reap all of the blessing. We don't just want a temporary improvement to a terminal condition. We want a solution. And that solution is right here. Take a look at verse 19 where he says, She, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. All right, this is not just a generic metaphor. Um, when a Jewish writer is writing to his Jewish son and he says, she is a tree of life, that is loaded, right? In, in their understanding, they're immediately going to think of the tree of life at the very beginning of the Bible. Because at the very beginning of the Bible, there were two trees put before Adam and Eve. And those two trees represented two paths into life, right? The tree of life represented the kind of life that is submitted to God as the creator of all things, recognizes him as the glorious one, the glorious center of all things. And and coming to the tree of life would have represented an embrace of God's moral and spiritual wisdom and authority. It would have been them saying to God, you are God and I am not. I submit myself joyfully to you to live in your glory and in the outpouring of your good. I am dependent on you. And as a result, am humble in the face of your glory and content to live in the overflow of your goodness. But they didn't go to the tree of life. They went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the, knowledge, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil re- represented a rejection of that wisdom. What they were saying was, I will define what is right and what is wrong. I will discover what is good and what is bad. I will be the center, not you. I will live for my glory and I will build my kingdom. I will not live for yours or build yours. So they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Basically saying to God, you made it all, you designed it all. You yourself are the measure of all that is good and glorious, but I choose not to center my life and my will and my affection on you. I choose to center them on me. I will be the center. I will be like God, and I will build my kingdom. When they ate the tree of rebellion, they plunged themselves and the entire created order into the chaos of rebellion. They were the stewards of the entire created order. They, they were the, the, the head. And so when they chose rebellion, they plunged every significant relationship into that rebellion. When you read through um, Oh, at the end of Genesis 3, by the way, the other tree, at the end of Genesis 3, what you find is that the tree of life <laughs> becomes off limits. God actually puts them out of the garden so they can't eat of the tree of life. And, and what that is, is signifying is, is this, you can't get to it, right? You were created to eat from the tree of life. The tree of life is what fully sustains you. It's what fully satisfies you. It's what your appetites and desires were designed to find their fulfillment in. In other words, the glory and the presence of God, the outpouring of his love and the presence of his character. You were designed to feast on God and in that feasting to be made more like God, to live in the outpouring of his good as you celebrate his glory. You can no longer feast from this tree. You are only left with the tree you have chosen. And that fruit will never satisfy You're going to chase things that aren't God and you're going to ask them to be God for you. 
You are going to chase things that cannot satisfy like God and long for them to give you the satisfaction that only God can give. And as a result, you will end up living quiet lives of despair with increasing and increasing levels of disappointment as you turn to one thing and then the next and say, this will satisfy me. This will make me significant. This will make me loved. This will finally make me glorious. And none of them do. As you read through Genesis chapter 3, what you see is a description of what happens immediately after they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the path of rebellion, the path of the fool. They immediately recognize that they are naked and need to be hidden. Now, this is not a condemnation of the human body. This is what we're seeing, the birth of shame in the human condition. For the first time in human history, they have the experience of not being enough, of not being worthy, of not being good. And they understand shame and guilt, and they recognize they have something to hide. And every single one of us are born with that same urge. That's why we work so hard to put an image out, to have people see us in a certain light or or to think of us in a certain way or to perceive us along a certain storyline. Why are we so determined to make sure people don't actually know us and see us? You know why? Because we're still in the bushes hiding in our shame. That quiet critic who sometimes isn't very quiet in the back of your head that tells you you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're stupid, you don't measure up. That voice was born on this day. And their response to that internal turmoil is they lost peace with themselves as that relationship with themselves was severed by their rebellion. It unleashed every form of mental torture that we endure today. We see their reaction to God, their other critical relationship. Their relationship with themselves is severed. Their relationship with God is severed. God comes in, God, who is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. They hear the sound of his voice walking in the garden and they hide because now the person who used to be the source of their life is actually a threat. The one who used to be a welcoming embrace of love is now terrifying in his holiness and his perfection both because they feel shame, but also because they feel pride. They don't want God to see their shame because they're afraid of the condemnation, but they're also in their pride afraid of God because God threatens their kingdom. They have chosen to build their kingdom instead of God's, to live for their end instead of God's. And as a result, God becomes a threat on all levels. So they seek to hide and pull away. As you go through, you see that this also introduced um, uh, a level of competition into human relationships. Adam and Eve, a relationship that was meant to be for mutual good and community and love and treasuring, is now filled with self-serving competition. What used to be all about giving love is now about fighting over the limited resources of affection. Adam and Eve were supposed to have this intimate, powerful relationship of one simply giving themselves freely to the other, of being so consumed with the other's good, they don't even have to think about their own. That's not our condition today, is it? Today we are fighting and measuring and evaluating and wrestling. See, on this day, that condition that we call falling out of love was created which really has nothing to do with love. You know, what falling out of love is, is me saying to you, you no longer are meeting my needs, so I reject you. 
You no longer make me feel the way I want to feel. You no longer make me significant or important or valuable. And as a result, I stick you out at arm's length. Adam and Eve's first sons, Cain and Abel, first murder. Can you imagine going from the Garden of Eden to watching your sons murder each other? And yet that was the outpouring, the the result of choosing their way instead of God, centering themselves on their kingdom instead of God's. Every significant relationship was broken on that day. You guys, that's what we're born into. That's the heritage we receive. That's the heart that we have. That's why our hearts crave the fruit of independence from God. That's why our hearts crave to hide in shame, but also exalt ourselves in our own self-glory. That's why when we read the do-nots, they're so hard for us. And we listen to those do-nots, and we actually look at them and actually start self-evaluating. Instead of just focusing on what we do well and ignoring what we don't do well, we actually allow those things to come in and expose our hearts we feel condemned and we start hiding or we start beating ourselves up or we start pretending. You guys think about it. This is why I rip people off. Why do I rip people off? It's because I take what isn't mine. I take what's rightfully theirs because it's a competition. And in a competition, I need to get ahead. I need what you have. Why don't I give somebody what is their due? Because In giving it to you, I feel lessened. I feel less powerful, less important, less less influential, less significant. It's a competition with limited resources. Why do we take advantage of the people that are closest to us and use them instead of sacrificing ourselves for them? Instead of giving ourselves freely to them. Why do we do that? It's because we're centered on ourselves and our own kingdoms And the relationships that are closest also have the greatest demand of us. And we resent what they demand from us. Why are we contentious and prone to pick fights with those who haven't provoked us? It's because their very existence is a threat to our autonomy and our supremacy. They are a threat to our self-centeredness to our view of ourselves and our world and our kingdom? Why do we live in envy of those who have lives different from ours? Why do we live in envy of people that are walking in paths of rebellion and rejection of God? Because we value silver and gold and and influence and power and comfort and pleasure more than we value joy and love, and life, and community. We value fame and the applause of men more than we value the quiet approval of God. Our hearts are utterly broken. That's why we can't obey the commands. That's why if I simply stand up here and tell you, stop doing that, I am failing you. Because you can't stop. So our solution can't be to turn to the command. Our solution has to be to turn to the promise. 
When Solomon says her ways are a tree of life, what he's saying is that God has established once again a way for us to come and feast at the proper tree. There's a way to have our deepest desires actually satisfied and fed. There's a way to be freed from the insanity of pursuing what isn't God and asking it to be God for us. And it's to come through the path of wisdom. That path is already spelled out in Proverbs 3 at the beginning. And it's the gospel. It's the good news that God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, of course, this was written before the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ didn't change the message. It just filled it out. It gave it flesh and bones. When Jesus came and lived the life we were supposed to live and died the death we deserved to die and rose again, he was our substitute in judgment so we could be his partner in life. It is an invitation back to the tree of life. It is an invitation back to life it was, was designed to be. To once again come and, and, and say, God, your glory is the center, not mine. Your love is everlasting, not mine. Your kingdom is glorious, not mine. I will live in your glory and in the outpouring of your good. For your glory, not my own. For your kingdom, not mine. I submit myself to you. You are God and I am not. I believe in Jesus. I rest in his finished work. And I am loved. Do you realize that is the most profound and life-transforming sentence ever? I am loved. Like unconditionally. In a way, no human can love you. Not based on how well you look or how you make somebody feel. You are loved because God is a God of steadfast love and he is faithful to the outworking of that love for your good. The greatest barrier you have to becoming the person God has designed you to be is a lack of faith in this promise. It is so hard for us to believe that we are loved. It is so hard for us to see ourselves as we actually are and simultaneously say, God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness to me. If we want to walk the path of wisdom, we have to grow in faith in the gospel. Because what ends up happening, you guys, is when we get past religion and we get past the commandments and we get past just obeying and trying to do better, all that's just rearranging the furniture. All of that is just behavioral management. What we want is a heart transformed. What we need is to be recreated. We need resurrection. And that only comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. As we let that love sink in to our hearts, melt our pride, break our shame, give us new names, we will be changed. And you will not only grow in your love for God, you will grow in your love for those that were created in the image of God. Those that you like and those that you don't. Those that are for you and those that are against you. And you will be able to speak truth from a heart of compassion because you will see in them the very brokenness that resides in you. And you will see in them the same desperate need for love and redemption 
that you have. See, we need to get off the treadmill, self-improvement, pride, shame. We're cosmically insane, you guys. <laughs> we really think we can fix ourselves. We really think. Just a little bit, you know. And we really think that we're absolutely, at the bottom line, unlovable. We need to get out of that race. Um, I've been reading a book, or I read a book by Brennan Manning called Abba's Child. And there were parts of it that really spoke to my heart. There was a section I want to quote for you this morning where he was describing Thomas Merton, who was a Christian mystic and became very influential during the time of his life. He says this, Thomas Merton, the most sought-after spiritual guide of our time, said one day to a fellow monk, if I make anything out of the fact that I am Thomas Merton, I am dead. All right, think about what he said there. If I make anything out of the fact that I'm Thomas Merton, I'm eating from the wrong tree. I'm pursuing the wrong kingdom. I am establishing the wrong name for myself. I am, I am dead, and I'm going to unleash dead and all of our ugly sisters in my life, right? I am dead. And if you make anything out of the fact that you are in charge of the pig barn, you are dead. What was Merton's solution? Quit keeping score altogether and surrender ourselves with our sinfulness to God who sees neither the score nor the scorekeeper, but only his child redeemed by Christ. Will you let yourself be loved in that way? Where there is no score, no scorekeeper? Where you don't build yourself up, make yourself feel better about yourself because of your perceived uh, accomplishments or, or tear yourself down and make yourself feel less worthy because of your perceived failures? Will you just let God love you unconditionally? Will you go to that place where there is neither score nor scorekeeper? There is just a child absolutely loved by a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Because if you will go there, you will taste transformation. And you'll begin to understand what it means to actually love God and to actually love people instead of using God and using people for your own ends. I'm going to put some questions up on the, uh, the screen. We're going to take some time. I'm going to create some space for you to pray and do some business with God. Let the Spirit speak to your heart in whatever way He is leading to bring conviction or, or comfort or whatever it is. Uh, but before we go into that time, I want to remind you, we do have the worship response cards in your bulletin. I'd love to fill them out. Let us know you were here. If you have prayer requests, put those down. We pray over those every week. We'd love to pray with you and for you. If you want to meet with somebody, you want information, let us know. We would love to meet with you. Um, those can be dropped in the response card um, boxes up front or by the door. If you're a first-time guest with us, please stop by Connection Point. We just want to give you a gift for visiting. Um, we're not going to make it weird. We just, we just want to say thanks and, and uh, that we'd like to get to know you. Okay? All right, let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response, let God speak to your heart, and then we will share communion uh, in a moment. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are who you say you are, that you don't overpromise and underdeliver. You are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who loves us in spite of us, a God who loves us not because we provoke that love, but because you choose to love us. And you've demonstrated it to us in the person of Jesus. I pray for my friends, I pray for myself, that our hearts will be broken by that truth.
and that out of that breaking, something beautiful will be born. A responding love to you, an increased love, compassion, and sensitivity to the people around us. Spirit, you're the only one that can do this. And I thank you that you are in the business of resurrection. That you are the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And as we believe in Jesus, that same spirit comes in and dwells us to change us, to free us, to transform us. Spirit, make us a people that just delight in your love. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.